This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, this is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Best bits from Tuesday, February the 20th. Coming up, we celebrate all things food, glorious food. Why? Because it is Gulf Food 2024 ongoing at the moment. And we've got no shortage uh, of uh, exhibitors in town. I think there's over 5,000 exhibitors this year from hundreds of countries. Uh, Just giving an indication of how important this particular fair is uh, for agencies the world over. Valerio Soldani is the director of the Italian Trade Agency, the ITA. They've got a huge uh, delegation in town for this one. That's indicative of the long-standing relationships between the two countries and the bilateral trade relations between both the UAE uh, and Italy. So we had Valerio join us live in studio. Uh, We're also talking tech this morning. Well, you can't have a business breakfast show without a chat about all things AI. You can't have a chat about anything about talking about AI these days. So Richard Windsor was kind enough to join us. He's the founder of Radio Free Mobile. He's been having a look at uh, OpenAI's latest iteration, Sora, which was launched officially last week, uh, sort of Wednesday, Thursday last week. Opportunity for everyone to give it a go, if you like, over the weekend and get a better understanding of it. Um, Just how good is Sora? Is it a game changer? And what does this sort of indicate about the intentions of a company like OpenAI? All questions we put to Richard. Roger Cruikshank is the Senior Director of Transport for Middle East and Africa at Atkins Realis. Uh, He joined us in studio to talk all things mobility or more specifically all things uh, metro and the transit of passengers left right and center why rta numbers out at the beginning of the week in fact over the weekend uh, suggesting they've seen a significant spike in demand for people using public transport here in the region metro was the big outlier uh, that seen record numbers again so in light of those record numbers uh, what can the rta do with the metro system as it stands at the moment Is there any scope to expand it? Is there any scope to make it larger? Uh, Could they get more passengers onto the lines at the moment before building new lines? Uh, Just a few of the questions that we put to Roger during our chat on all things mobility and mass people transit uh, throughout the course of this morning. Uh, Lots of information coming through with regards to economies as well. Germany's central bank warning that the economy uh, will shrink this quarter. That could see Europe's biggest economy going into recession as well. What does that mean for us? Jem Walters giving us her thoughts on that one. We also uh, reflected on a couple of other GDP numbers coming out uh, from around the world. So that's all right here on the Bite Series Business Breakfast podcast. We start in Germany. Somebody calling us out saying, if ever we're to play German music, we have to play 99 Red Balloons, apparently. Uh, no, 1990 Luftballon. No, I can't remember. GCSE <laughs> German was a long time ago. Uh, but for now, we'll stick with that. Uh, we're talking about Germany because it's the big international economic market story today. America closed yesterday. German Central Bank, the Bundesbank, warning that Germany's heading for a recession. We had contraction in the economy last quarter, and it says this quarter is going to be the same. We've been speaking to this about, or speaking about this with Jean Walters, senior economist at Emirates MBD, and we asked her, "Isn't 
Germany meant to be some kind of industrial powerhouse. The German central bank warned on Monday that GDP was likely to shrink again in the first quarter of 2024. Given the German economy shrank 0.3% in Q4 2023, a further decline in Q1 would amount to a technical recession. Germany has traditionally relied on its strong manufacturing sector as an engine of growth, but that model has come under pressure on the back of rising gas prices following the start of the conflict in Ukraine, as well as high interest rates and falling global demand. What does it mean for us? What are the ripple effects? It is, of course, the biggest economy in Europe. And what are the key source markets for tourism here in the UAE? Here's Jean Walters again. While the UAE, as a small open economy, is affected by what happens in large global markets like Germany, it is important to note that the German central bank is not currently expecting this recession to be long or deep, with no large rise in unemployment expected. We also anticipate that the ECB will begin cutting rates around mid-2024, which should provide some relief to the German economy. Big news out of the United States tomorrow night. We've got a couple of things happening. First of all, minutes of the most recent Fed meeting, and we've got not one but two Fed policymakers giving speeches on Wednesday night. Throw into the mix, you've also got NVIDIA earnings out on Wednesday night. It's going to be a big night, so we're going to be crossing live to the US on Thursday morning for reaction to all of that. In the meantime, though, very quickly, Tom, on that NVIDIA story, it's all about artificial intelligence. You're going to be talking all things AI in just a few moments' time, aren't you? Yeah, Rich Winder's going to be joining us uh, of Radio Free Mobile. Uh, why? Because um, everyone's got a little bit excited about Sora. Uh, S-O-R-A is the latest offering from OpenAI. Uh, it's their latest creation, um, and it's pretty special. I haven't used it yet, but basically it's – you give it a couple of cues. I think the cue they used on, on, on the demonstration when they launched it and how on earth they came up with it, creative lot, uh, but they went woolly mammoths in snowy valley – running or something like that and as if by magic within 30 seconds you had a nigh on perfect 30 to 40 second clip of woolly mammoths um charging through a snowy valley somewhere um and that's basically the remit here is that you can have videos created in no time at all. So whereas before you'd be searching for this, that and everything, and you'd have your edit little apps out, you'd be doing that and putting together um, footage and, and, and music on top of that, etc. Uh, this is a video editing tool, and it does it in no time whatsoever. Which is good for broadcast journalists, isn't it? You know, that's sort of, yeah, that's going to make them sleep a little safer at night, isn't it? That's for sure. Rumours of our demise have been greatly exaggerated. I give you the buggles in 1979. Video killed the radio star. Maybe this will be the final nail in the coffin of our careers. The one for me in this field that really made me stand up was Imran Khan, the Pakistani politician who is, of course, in jail, and the statement that he issued the day after the election. And I'm not taking sides in the Pakistani election. It's a very serious issue. I'm certainly no expert on it. But purely from a use of AI perspective... He couldn't give a personal statement himself to be recorded. So via his supporters or via his, his team who were outside of jail, they used AI to create a video message for him, which is very popular on social media. He's got a very distinctive voice, mm. hasn't he? And, and it looked and sounded like him. And it just is so much more powerful. It wasn't a deep fake. It was a deep legit. And that struck me as a very creative use of AI. 
but also a very worrying development. The greatest pronunciation of the word tiger ever. Um, in that famous speech that he gave, his rallying call ahead of their uh, Cricket World Cup um, victory back in early 80s, was it? I think... Were they the first one to win the Cricket World Cup? It was in England, wasn't it? I've got 94 in my head, but I don't Maybe know. Because Dev in India was the early 80s. Right, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It was probably a little I bit later than that, I think he was it? 90s. I'll, I'll fact-check that one for you. Yeah, but his rattling called Daiga. Um, beautiful pronunciation of the word. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we're talking the economics of trains. <laughs> And that's because new data from the RTA here in Dubai show a boom in public transport in 2023. A 13.13% increase in journeys led by the metro. 260 million people or 260 million journeys. Joining us in the studio to give us some answers to the transport conundrum is Roger Cruikshank. He is with Atkins Realis, one of the world's biggest engineering companies and a man and a company that has worked on projects including Dubai Metro. Roger, good to have you with us. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you for having me. So, great news that more people are using public transport, but loads of messages in yesterday saying the metro is really, really busy at the moment. It's great, but how can we get more metro? We've reached, say, some people peak metro. What's your thought? So, obviously, there are some pressure points within the system, um, and uh, obviously, the RTA are looking at these and are working with uh, the operator to see how they can, you know, make better use of the the trains they have and and looking to enhance some of the systems. It's also worth highlighting the benefits of technology with the null card, etc., are allowing passengers to get into the stations quicker. So, there are a number of things that are being studied around enhancing stations. We are working on a project at the moment around that. So, the idea. Of, of creating a better experience for passengers as they wait for trains and indeed when they're on the trains. So we had lots of messages yesterday about this and some quite creative ideas on how you could increase capacity on the metro, particularly at peak times. My idea, um, let's start with me, was to make it a double-decker metro. I was in Paris a couple of weeks ago. There, the trains going around Paris are double-decker. Could we do that here? I think there are potential possibilities. Obviously, there are some countries around the world that have been looking at and do indeed operate double-decker trains. Clearly, there are constraints around the tunnels that are are part of the system. But I think, uh, you know, people could put their minds to it. But clearly, it's an exercise of the future, I might suggest, because obviously, it takes time and effort to actually design something uh, to put in place on existing infrastructure. Right, Okay. So that's not going to happen anytime soon. Perhaps more sensible suggestions that we had in yesterday were about adding extra carriages and various ways you could do that. One person suggested just add one extra carriage. It's five at the moment, make it six. You don't even have to stretch the platforms. People could just walk through the sixth carriage and get off in the fifth carriage, which seemed like a vaguely sensible common sense solution. What's your professional engineering take on that? So look, the the stations have some uh, opportunity, but equally there are sort of public safety issues to deal with in terms of being able to put people through carriages without doors potentially opening. But no, these are sort of aspects that need to be examined in a little bit more detail. And again, um, I think the Roads and Transport Authority are looking with their operator at how they can enhance some of those services. I think there's also opportunity still to perhaps squeeze in a couple of areas um, around how the trains operate per, per minute, as it were, 
through through the system because there are waiting points at which the trains actually hold. So some trains don't go in th- across the entire length of red line. They actually stop midway through and can be brought back into service. So there are some uh, clever accounting that can take place with the, ra- with the rail system. So the stuff we could do with the existing infrastructure, both the track and the rolling stock, that could increase the there number are some, of passengers. There are some potential opportunities, yes, there are. What about expanding stations or stretching stations? Now, I know you do a lot of work with the RTA and other governments, and obviously you've signed NDAs, so you can't tell us about anything confidential, and I wouldn't ask you to do that. But just generally in terms of the world and and expanding metro stations or train stations or extending platforms, I mean, this has been done before. It was done in the 19th century, wasn't it? It was. I think the challenge clearly is going to be around you do it at some stations, and if you don't do them all, kind of what happens? there so it's a kind of a big undertaking in order to actually think if you're going to expand one station you really have to genuinely expand a lot more stations so there's a big price tag around that the alternative i think at the moment is what the rt i think has decided to push for which is more lines actually happening to actually distribute passengers around the system so they're not all channeled down Shakeside Road they can use alternative mechanisms and that's what is is part of this rail master plan that's being rolled out as part of Dubai 2040 plan well and that brings me on to the next point I read a great piece by you and one of your colleagues in the national newspaper just a few weeks ago and the headline was there are compelling environmental and business cases for investing billions in the region's domestic and international railway networks. Why are you such a big fan of trains? Are you just a geek or or is is this a professional opinion? (laughs) Look, I think we've seen the benefits of, of public transport across the world. I mean, cities like London and Tokyo are not grinding to a halt because public transport is providing that release or that a permanent uh, alternative to the private car. And Paris, as an other example, is looking to sort of push vehicles away entirely from their city centres. So why I'm a big fan is because you physically can carry 3,000 people on one train is the same as the number of cars that can be on the road at exactly the same time. In addition to all that, we're into this work-play environment where, look, if we can just step out of our place and go somewhere quickly, get to our place of work and and use that facility and then come back relatively quickly and straightforward. And you've seen in London in particular and New York, uh, Hong Kong, that the land values rise significantly around uh, railway stations. So there's massive opportunities. And indeed, you know, in Dubai, this what we call transit orientated development is happening and I see some major benefit and even monies associated with those developments being pumped back into greater and more public transport for the city. You say one of the things we need is behaviour change. You, you, you're talking about creating 20-minute cities or 20-minute zones within cities mm. where you can work, rest and play within a 20-minute walk. And I guess that needs changes in master planning and development. I mean, look where we are. We're in on the corner of Media City and Knowledge Park. When this was built 20 years ago, yep. it was just a business park. No residential, a couple of hotels, that was it. But the world's moved on since then and it now recognises that actually you want mixed use zones rather than just one place to live one place to work and one place to play 
How do we do that? Yeah, look, we're, uh, 95% of the time a car is just sitting in a garage, not doing anything. So I think people have taken that upon themselves to think, well, what can we do that makes the areas much more of an opportunity? We're using a lot of data to kind of understand what people actually want. And indeed, we're master planning using that data to actually work out how we can create more livable environments for people. And I think actually, given where we are with post-COVID, people want to sort of live and work where they are. They're tired, I think, of actually making long stretches of, of one hour or more. So we're looking to see master plans that are much more inclusive, uh, much more vibrant, uh, and much more taking care of the needs of what you need right on your doorstep. I guess the, the price of innovation is that not everything works. <laughs> and I give you Hyperloop, which obviously, and you mentioned this in your article, uh, Hyperloop doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Headline on Bloomberg recently, Hyperloop want to shut down after failing to reinvent transit. We know Dubai has been a, a significant investor in Hyperloop. I guess just not everything works, Roger? Well, look, there's a supply chain that's really set up around the railway systems, uh, and that's of 200 years. So it takes a, a, a big leap, of course, to move into a newer set of technology. So, look, Hyperloop or something of a variant like that, I'm uncertain will, will come at some point and sometime in the future. But clearly, perhaps at the moment, it just seems like a little bit of a train too far. That's good to hear. Roger Cruikshank is Senior Director for Transport for the Middle East and Africa at Atkins Realis. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's turn attention to all things tech, more specifically to artificial intelligence. Why? Uh, because uh, Sora was introduced to us last week. OpenAI's new text-to-video generator, a tool, which the San Fran-based company unveiled uh, last Wednesday, last Thursday, in fact, uh, uses generative AI to instantly create short videos based on written commands. You might have seen the clips doing the rounds on social and otherwise. Mammoths in snow, in valleys and things like that. Um, so what is the potential of Sora and others? Well, to talk all things tech, we're joined by the founder of Radio Free Mobile, uh, Richard Windsor, who's been kind enough to join us live on Microsoft Teams this morning. Richard, good morning to you. Good morning, Tom. We've got the latest iteration, the latest offering from our friends at OpenAI, who seem to be dominating just about every conversation at the moment. You've had an opportunity uh, to get your teeth into all things sore over the course of the weekend. What do you make of it? Um, it's an interesting proposition. Um, if you look at where text to video generation was a year ago, and I'm sure your listeners can look up if you, if you Google um, Will Smith eating spaghetti, you'll find what they produced a year ago. Compared that to what was produced last week, you're looking at an exponentially large improvement in quality. So the actual visual quality is really, really good, extremely impressive. However, details matter. When you look at the videos that they've produced, what you can very clearly see is that although the videos themselves look very good, the machine that creates them demonstrates very little understanding of the world that it is actually created because there's you can find very elementary mistakes, breaking fundamental laws of physics, rules of games that are well known and so on and so forth. They're making, uh, and again, is this just because we are such an early stage of this development? Are these things that can be sorted out further down the line? Or, again, does this sort of give evidence of the fact that this is one of the fundamental issues of uh, open AI, uh, not just open AI, but of uh, AI in general? 
Yes, this is the great debate. Um, and there are two sides to that debate. Um, on the pro-AI side of the debate is the this that starts to, gen, uh, to demonstrate that artificial intelligence is becoming truly intelligent simply because of the performance that it's able to produce. The other side of the debate, which is where I lie, is, is that when you look at how these machines work, they are effectively statistical pattern recognition systems. Now, in very simple terms, what that means, it means they don't understand what they're doing. Um, and this is why you see these machines make all of these elementary errors. What that means is, that in practice for a few things, there could be some use case, but when details really, really matter, things like Sora are not gonna be able to meet the expectations that are currently being set for them. There's no shortage of them. I mean, NVIDIA's got their Omniverse out there. We're seeing more and more examples of this at the moment. What, what, if we looked at it from pros and cons point of view, view Richard, what caught your eye in terms of Sora? Well, one thing to, to be honest with you, it's really good for is is um, our sort of things. When you look at uh, a lot of television programs and films, what you will see is very high, wide shots of places like New York City or Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Um, when you look at those, the video that the machines can produce in that instance, it's extremely good and pretty much faultless. So from that perspective, you know, there's a great use case there. The flip side is that actually you read what OpenAI intends Sora to do. What they intended to do is to recreate and understand the laws of physics so that one can, in a virtual world, test problems where usually you would have to make a physical prototype. And that's where I think it's going to run into difficulties because, again, it doesn't really understand the nature of the world that it is creating and therefore it will not be very able to accurately simulate it. And is that the key word here? Is accuracy key in order to build that trust? I think so. From a, from a commercial perspective, that's absolutely correct, yes. Um, and there are many, many examples where these machines go completely off the rails. Um, and actually, in one case, uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually got a company into legal hot water. What's your take on what, what OpenAI are trying to do here? I mean, there isn't a week that goes past without another big announcement coming out of the OpenAI stables at the moment. What's the big game plan? There's, there's two, there are two game plans. Um, one, which, one which I think will never really go anywhere, and two, and a second one which I think has got some, some distance to it. The first one is OpenAI is trying to create artificial general intelligence. What that means in the in, in the grand scheme of things is super intelligent machines arguably more intelligent than people. There is no evidence, in my opinion, that demonstrates that the method that our, our OpenAI has chosen will ever produce that result. The second thing that OpenAI is doing is they're starting to create an artificial intelligence ecosystem. So they're producing platforms like GPT, like Sora. And the idea is, is that people who want to create a, a chatbot or a, um, a, a, a piece of video of a very specific item can come in, retune their foundation models and then use them for the specific use cases they have in mind. And the idea is, is, to be, is for these AI platforms to become a little bit like the iOS operating system on your phone or Android on your phone. They're the platform on which you base all of your innovation. And that is if you look at Apple and Google and Alibaba and Tencent, 
these companies have created gigantic global businesses worth many hundreds of billions of dollars because they are the platform for smartphone development. And what OpenAI is doing is trying to recreate that, but for artificial intelligence. And, and in 30 seconds, Richard, will, will the others follow at the moment? Absolutely. Um, you know, you look at Google. I've always rated Google as the best artificial intelligence company in the world. It's got a new platform out, Gemini. Looks to be very capable. Google's problem is just not very good at market, marketing itself. But I think I think there's going to be a big competitive uh, struggle over the next few years. Google needs some big woolly mammoths. That's what they need, isn't it? That'll catch the attention, that's for sure. Listen, Richard, can't thank you enough. Uh, Richard is the founder of Radio Free Mobile. Uh, running the line on all things Sora. Big thanks to you, Richard, for joining us live on Microsoft Teams this morning. And, uh, this, mo- this morning, I should say. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. There are few countries in the world uh, that can have a greater gastronomic and uh, culinary culture and heritage than the one that, well, created La Dolce Vita. Questa strada Sembra finta e dipinta da. The Italians are in town for Gulf food. Well, yeah couldn't have a food fair without the Italians, could you? Uh, and with them, the newly appointed director of the Italian Trade er- Agency is here. In fact, he's joined us live in studio as well to celebrate all things food, all things Middle East and more. Uh, good morning and welcome to Valerio Soldani, who joins us live here in studio. Valerio, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Great to see you. Listen, uh, Gulf Food is with us here at the moment. Listen, you're no stranger uh, to food fairs, the world over it is one of the great uh, imports and exports of the beautiful country of Italy. How how important is Gulf food for you and the Italian Trade Agency? It's one of the top shows we're having worldwide because we are the second exhibiting country and we've been here for decades showcasing the best of the Italian cuisine tradition, the best of our products. And we have a very good selection of companies these are like almost 200 companies exhibiting different halls and showcasing some of the most iconic products that we have in our heritage. We also have an Italian food lab where we are um, having 15 chefs, Michelin star chefs and stars that are active here in the best fine cuisine restaurants in Dubai that are using ingredients and products live and show people how to use them, how to experience them with guests and in their life every day and families. So it's really interesting for us and very important. I mean, gatherings like this are, are, are important for the industry as a whole, and not just because of latest products to market and uh, some of the great um, the, the foods being celebra- celebrated, but also food trends. Do you, have you noticed a trend specifically this year when it comes to Italian agri-food imports and exports? Yeah, we've seen like the the, 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 the industry itself is growing double digits. So our experts here are more than 400 million euros. We are the 30 you exported to the country. But there are some of the Italian products that are growing at a faster pace, like uh, dairies, cheese, uh, traditional DOP, so the 
uh, origin protected products that we have and we are selling here and in the GCC countries. And we see a huge spike in demand in the next five years that is driven mostly by demographics because the UAE is, dry, is having, adding more than one million more people coming over here in the next five years. And they're driving a huge demand spike in olive oil, in cheese and dairies, in pasta and cereals, bakery products. So this kind of industry verticals are really growing and we are pitching to, let's say, not only a premium segment, but a general public a possibility to have great quality product at a, a really good price when it comes to everyday grocery shopping, but even having a fine food experience in some of the best restaurants of Dubai. Uh, another very interesting trend to me is sustainability. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, uh, new generations gaining purchasing power and wanting to experience the Italian lifestyle through cuisine, fashion, and some other iconic products that we sell in the GCC countries. They're more attentive, they're more, uh, let's say, keen and focused on sustainability. And we, as the second EU producer of organic food, are really seeing a very good spike in demand on those products. And some of our companies at the fair are showcasing some of these products that are less CO2-emitting, in the supply chain of production that are part of our agricultural ecosystem and only a food industry but a very closely tied uh, all agricultural and food ecosystem. So I think we can address these trends with our products in fair. I'm glad you brought up the, the, the sustainability issue there as well, because one, one other thing I want to talk about is cost and the, the impacts of costs at the moment. And we've seen some strange harvests recently. We've seen tomato prices rising. Olive oil prices have rised around the world as well because of the harvest uh, recently. Uh, add to that the blockages in the Red Sea area and a number of products not getting through to this part of the world and further afield as well. Uh, inflation is playing its part in parts of the world at the moment. How much pressure is that putting on producers at the moment, but also organisations like yours to, to, to standardise prices to make sure that those products are still avoid, uh, uh, affordable, both in-country and outside? Yeah, being Italy the first country in terms of added value, so from what we, uh, what is the raw product to the final product that is on the shelves of a grocery market, we feel that pressure, but we still can uh, address it in a very efficient way. Mm. If you come over at the trade show and speak with, uh, with a lot of small and medium enterprises, but also medium-sized companies that are over here, and they are, let's say, the the spine, the bone, the very core business of the Italian exporting companies to, to the UAE, they're addressing this uh, challenge uh, with this uh, attitude and focus on added value first, and second, with adding new technology as well. We have some companies that are using precision farming. You have, for example, some of rice uh, producers in Italy. Italy has the best biodiversity, so range of breeds of rice, 
that is being exported all over the world and precision farming and a lot of technology uh, advanced techniques in agriculture are really there to help power producers to address this kind of pressure. So if you come over, speak to the chefs and the producers as well, because we have founders and owners in, sh in the show here at Gulf Food, it's a really good occasion to understand how we are addressing this with our tradition of a closed ecosystem of small and medium enterprises and a good side on technology advancement as well. We know that the relationships between the UAE and Italy are very, very strong. Connections, be it from flights, tourism, long-standing relationships between the two. But bilateral trade relations, can they really benefit from, from food? Is, can food bring together countries? I think it could because it's a matter of culture, it's a matter of what we eat and get inside our body and makes our healthy lifestyle every day. So that's why, for example, we have a, an official candidate that it's Italy cuisine to the UNESCO World yeah. Heritage. And we are advertising this at the Gulf Food this year because we think that food is a plays a real important role in a healthy lifestyle and the well-being of our families and relationship but being you know our trade about seven billion between Italy and the UAE we are seeing some of the um, industries that make our lifestyle very famous in the world like the song that you were playing in the opening <laughs> uh, and you know we're seeing like fashion that is growing double digit food is growing double digit uh, even machinery, because the UAE is a, uh, as an official project of adding capacity building in terms of production. And, you know, Italy is here whenever you want to get great products on the shelves and in your everyday life. And I strongly believe that with a melting pot of culture that Dubai and the Emirates are, we really can play a role in adding some value on that. Long may that relationship continue as well. You back down to Gulf Food today? For sure. How we was yesterday? Was it busy? Yeah, super busy, super happy companies and visitors. And we had a lot of chefs sharing great food. <laughs> oh, my God, I had the best risotto in my life yesterday. <laughs> uh, Valerio, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Valerio Saldani, Director, Italian Trade Agency. Join us live. Enjoy Gulf Food. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on Dubai Eye 1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.